Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is powered by TD Ameritrade. Every stroke counts on the scorecard and every penny counts in the market. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to straightforward pricing with no surprises. So you're free to swing with confidence. Visit tdameritrade.com slash fried egg. Member SIPC. It's U.S. Open weekend. We welcome on uh, U.S. Open champion, 2006 U.S. Open champion, Jeff Ogilvie. Uh, Jeff comes on to talk about the U.S. Open, what it's like to play in it, a little bit about his win at Wingfoot and as well as other uh, U.S. Opens, and then uh, Pebble Beach. So without further ado, here's Jeff Ogilvie, and uh, enjoy today's podcast. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. You were going to do a, a rota of say five courses for the U.S. Open. What would they be? Uh, Oakmont, Pinehurst number two, Shinnecock, Pebble. How many is that? Is that four? It's four. Only one more. There's, I mean, I like West Coast Opens. I don't like Olympic though. I don't think that belongs in that. F- I mean, Olympic's amazing, but I don't think it belongs in that. If it's just going to be five, I don't know. Riv maybe Riviera would be an incredible US Open. LA North would be fun too. I think Riv would be a great one actually. I'm excited for LA North. I'm a little worried about scores. People getting crazy about scores there. It's going to be wide, but the greens are pretty crazy there. Yeah. I'm more worried about logistics. I mean, how are cars going to get in and out and like where are people going to stay? And like, that's like the busiest traffic area in the whole world. That's going to be uh, logistically interesting. You know, those who rent, who's going to rent the, the Playboy Mansion for the week? Monkeys are still there. Yeah, they are. The animals are still there. <laughs> you know, those uh, apartments like that overlook it, they're like empty. Oh, really? I guess that like oil money owns them and they're like perfectly content just hemorrhaging money. I know. All year. And it's like there's just all of them are empty. It's I such a good place. Yeah. The West Coast Opens are good because the weather's more predictable, right? You just, you can get foggy at Pebble, right? But like LA weather in summer, like the Tory Open was the best West weather we've had by far. And actually, weirdly enough, the Chambers was the best one we've had too. Like the East Coast ones are storms and sometimes you get unpredictable rain and it's really, really hot. But yeah, Oakmont, what did I say? Oakmont, Pinehurst, Pebble, Shinnecock, Wingfoot. There you go. Wingfoot. But, uh, yeah, you got Wingfoot. Put We've got to put Wingfoot. Wingfoot's a perfect venue, actually. It's a great place. Not just because of me, but Wingfoot's a great club. What, uh, what's the most underrated thing about winning a US Open? The most underrated thing? They're all rated pretty high, I think. I don't know. It's been good. But I guess, like, what's the thing that you didn't know? That, like, when, it, when you won it, that now you look back and you're like whoa that was cool or something the thing that blew me away the most is that even to this day i get new people 
telling me that they were there that Sunday or they they marshaled the fourth hole on the Thursday that week or like how many people are like actually involved and watch and are interested in the US Open is more than any other tournament that I've ever seen or heard about. I mean, everybody's seen, there's such a tradition in the US to watch the US Open on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Father's Day, it's just what people do, right? And they might not watch golf all year, but that's their day to watch golf. And to this day, I meet people who talk about that Sunday for whatever reason. It was kind of a member one because of what Phil did and stuff too. So it kind of sticks out in people's memories a little bit too, I think. Just yeah. how many people watch it is just amazing to me. You had Phil and then you had Monty. And you had the, just the scoring in general, the the massacre at Wingfoot. Yeah, it was nuts. It was. Uh, it actually didn't, obviously because I was playing well, it didn't seem, everyone was complaining about how hard it was and I didn't think it was that hard. I mean, obviously our scores were high. We would I don't know if anyone was ever under par. Maybe after day one, there was someone under par. But I won it five, five over, I think. Five over. But I never thought it was that hard. And people were complaining that the greens were a bit ropey in the afternoons and stuff. And I, I, obviously, I was playing well because I thought that it was playing perfectly. But it was tough. It's, you know, isn't that how it is, though? If you're playing well, like, you're probably not going to be complaining. Yeah, I guess. I mean... Every other US Open, I complained pretty much. Not complained, but they're just so hard and it feels unfair hard um, sometimes, you know. Um, And it's just, you just get, you can put in like nine great holes and you're just grinding and you're trying so hard and every hole's the hardest hole you've ever played and you're making pars and you're making pars and you're making pars and you get one kind of weird bounce into a bad lie over the green, you make a double and you just, all the air comes out of your sails because you've just put so much effort into keeping near the par. As soon as you make a double, you know you're never getting back near par again, right? It's just such a depressing, deflating kind of experience you can have in a US Open that they can be hard to play. Yeah, my buddy that played uh, a lot of AM, USGA stuff, we were playing the mid-AM a few years, and he was like, just remember, par, when you're making a lot of pars, you're doing really good. Like, especially with that being a match play thing, you know, like, if you make a, if you just keep making lots of pars, you'll be fine. Like you can, you know, you can avoid, you know. But if you make tons of pars, you're fine. And I, I feel like that's the way with the U.S. Open too. I was, I was out watching today, and I was, I think there's a lot of birdies at Pebble, and Rory talked about it a little bit. There's a ton of birdies at Pebble because you get wedges if you hit good shots. And but the the flip side of it is that Pebble might be like laden with the most like you can make double or triple or quad anywhere, it seems like. You can make a double or triple so fast. And even with a wedge in your hand, if you just get a little too aggressive, the greens are very kind of volcanoed. You know, they're all high with the bunkers. The bunkers on the outside are really high with steep slopes down onto the greens. And so if you're landing it over any of these bunkers, you hit these down slopes. And if you take on too much, you hit a big down slope, you get one big bounce over the back into some crazy rough they've got that just ringing the bunkers is like nutty thick um you can and you get over the green and you get over the green on half the greens at pebble you can't get the wedge the pitch on the green there's just no way it's just going to go off the front so it's uh it's relatively doable if you hit every shot well you know not every us open can be like that i mean you can hit good shots at oakmont and get in real trouble um pebble if you hit good shots you're going to be all right but as soon as you miss you're going to have stress when it's set up like this anyway Mm-hmm. It's uh, how much how, people talk about how different it is from like the pro am, but like how, what would you say like on a, a shot value would U.S. Open versus AT and T pro am setup be? Well, the the pebble the pro am 
we don't play way off the back, I don't think. I mean, there's US Open TC that I don't think, I think they only use every 10 years here. Um, so it's not as long. I mean, the ball isn't rolling on the fairway, so it maybe plays, in some ways it might play longer, but it plays so wide because the fairways are really wide here normally, like 50, 60 yards wide. I mean, it's a public course. They play 60,000 rounds a year. They want to get everyone around as fast as they can. So the fairways are really wide and the greens are very soft. And the pins are right in the middle in the prime because we've got AMs out there and they want to they don't have the tough pins, they have the easy pins. So it's not it's it's the same shots that you're being asked to hit. Because the tough shot the tough thing about Pebble, I think, is that the ball's always you're always on a side slope. The whole property like slopes towards the ocean. And you play one, the ball's below your feet. You know, you play two, the ball's below your feet. You play like three, four, five, not so much. Six, the ball's below your feet, down slope, eight, the ball's arguably on a downslope sometimes. Nine, the ball's really below your feet. Ten, the ball's really below your feet, you know. And then you turn back around and come the other way and the ball's above your feet for the rest of the way. And it's... um. So that stuff is the same when it's in the Pro-Am. So the part of the trickiness of Pebble is still there. But when the ball lands, it stops in the Pro-Am. And the US Open, when the ball lands, it doesn't stop. And that's why it gets so much harder. Yeah, the, uh, the other thing I think that's neat, I talked with uh, Garrett... Uh, one of my, who's our editor about it, is that all the greens, it's kind of got that a little bit of the Augusta thing that you talked a lot about where the greens orient the opposite way of the slopes mm-hmm. on all the holes. And, you know, it it's different in the way Augusta is so varied, but like Pebbles kind of like you, you get through one stretch, then you go to the other stretch where you're, you're going to be like the complete yeah. opposite yeah the holes along the on the way out like suppose the holes like nine and ten it's very obvious that you need to hit a draw into those greens but you the ball is so far below your feet and the ocean's out to the right it's a pretty scary proposition to try to hit a draw so it confuses you with slope a lot it's pretty untalked about i think at pebble and the us open uh it's just accentuated because it's firmer so the fa- the fairways get pin- narrowed way down to i mean they're wider than some us opens i would say here i don't know if they've come out with any numbers but they're probably 30 yards wide at pebble maybe mm-hmm. um because of this they play 15 yards wide though because the ball goes sideways when it lands on a lot of holes so uh it's just a great place to play golf you know it's it asks there's some scary shots you're asked to hit you know like those augusta style shots over 15 and like kind of hero shots here they're not quite as i guess famous but I mean, the second shot to eight is a scary shot. The shot up the hill at six is a really scary shot. You know, it's a different style of thing of going over water, but um, you're hitting it up just a cliff, you know. Um, eight's a, an incredibly tough shot. The second shot to nine and the second shot to ten and the tee shot on ten, I mean, they're outrageously difficult shots. And, like, you really, really just have to kind of sack up and hit it, you know what I mean? You just have to, like, it's just there's no, there's no way of hitting a shot under the ninth or tenth green at Pebble if you're not just super confident and put a proper swing on it because it's just not going to happen. Do you think there's more intimidation because it's like a cliff than a normal water hazard? Yeah, I would think. I mean, it's so big, the ocean, right? It's so beautiful. And or you're looking at it all day, so it's got your attention. And I think the psychologists all tell us the ball goes where our attention is, right? And it's your attention. How do you not look at Carmel Bay when you're playing 9 and 10, right? It's the prettiest thing in the world. Um, it, it's clearly more difficult being the ocean and the cliff than it would be just a pond or a lake or something. It's, it's really amazing. Like when you, when you get up six and then you see everything, it's 
like no matter how many times you see it, it's still just amazing. Ah, oh, it's ridiculous. It's the I minutes. Mean, the best reveal in golf is walking off the fourth tee at Pebble. Yeah, yeah. You know, play the first three holes, you like, and you can kind of get a glimpse of what's going to go on on the third. Um, but then you kind of play the fourth tee, and it's you walk about a hundred yards, and all of a sudden you go past the beach club, and you just come out to this, and for the next two hours you're just on the cliff looking at uh, the Pacific Ocean. It's outrageous. But that we walk off that fourth tee is one of the best moments in golf. Mm-hmm. I think that's a cool hole too. I think that's a yeah, it's sweet. I mean, it's mate, it feels overbunkered these days, but um, it's a great little hole. What a great little green! I'd like to see him go put it up one day, make it two eighty. Yeah, because going for it's not the play, even if you can get there. I don't think so. If you give it a two eighty, they're not going to be able to help themselves. These guys. Yeah, and you're going to see fives all all day because they'll all miss the green left, and no one will hit it on pitch it on the green. And yeah, I'll be um. Yeah, that's a that's a cool hole. That's a great hole. I mean, every, I mean, Pebble's got good holes. Like, people probably kind of there's some Cypress Point snobs around, you know, who don't think Pebble's worthy of the same breath. But it's got a lot of really cool stuff about it. I think it's. I think it's completely different style course than Cypress, where where Pebble's like a a journey against like the wilderness. You know, yeah, and like, you know, like it's a big golf. It's a course. big course, and it's yeah. the out and back kind of deal, and um, it's much more like a, it's like brawny, and where like Cypress is like, kind of like, it's like a romantic. Cypress is like a romantic place to play golf. It's a bit you more know? mystical or something, yeah. It's a bit and, more mystique about it. And then you go to I, I Pebble reminds me a lot of Yale. Which is like you know, place where you're going and it's like a, an adventure, you know. Mm. Like in in the, nothing more to me than the that six hole where you're like climbing up, yeah. like and it's like you're you're hitting it up a mountain. And you can imagine doing that in 1929. It's pretty brave. I mean, that routing like six, seven, eight is incredibly. I mean, it's an amazingly brave thing to do in that long ago with the equipment that they had to go up that hill. No one would go up six anymore. You'd play down at the bottom of the hill and you'd walk up and play another hole or something. You know, you wouldn't, no one would do that now. Um, and seven, it's pretty audacious to put a little hundred yard hole right there on the thing. I mean, what a hole too. Yeah. I mean, it's, what a spot there. Like that, that section of the course, six through 10 green is, that's a pretty stretch. That's a pretty good stretch of golf. Yeah. And then everybody sleeps on the uphill holes, but they're pretty cool. Too. I like them too. It's yeah. different. It's, um, they're, I mean, 11 is a pretty easy hole, really, in the US Open, I would think. I mean, you can get it wrong because the green's really small, but 12 is one of the hardest greens to hit in the world on a par three for a green that really isn't very slopey. It's actually one of the flatter ones at Pebble, and it's, that's a nightmare hole. Next one you can get wrong. It seems so simple, but that green is savage. And 14, that green is, I mean, you can make any number you want. You could be 110 for two from the green, and you could, uh, you could make anything there. 14. It's better than it was when they fixed it, but it's still it's mm-hmm. great. It's so small, you try to hit it onto a tabletop from 110, and from 110 it plays 130 up the hill. And if you miss it a yard left, it's really bad. And if you miss it a yard right, it can used to come all the way back off the green behind the front bunker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crazy. I saw a stat um, in 2010. If you miss the fairway on 14, only 34 percent of players hit the green in reg. That'd be right because it's. I mean, I don't know what it measures, 550 or something. It's quite a long hole, but it, 
effectively plays about 100 yards longer than it is because the third, the second shot is up. I mean, I don't know how percentage grade it's up, but it's up pretty steep for a really long way. <laughs> and the green's way up in the air. And that left rough is an awful place, I feel like. Yeah, the rough anywhere in the US Open, and I, it feels Pebbles obviously a fertile place. They can grow some pretty good rough here. <laughs> it's, um, so we we talked uh, we talked about it. It was kind of fitting. We talked about Brooks the last before, last time we talked before the PGA and how like historically great like he is on the back nines and closing out stuff. And then sure enough, like he goes out and wins. You kind of called it. You're like it's going to be a high ball hitter. Yeah. So you know with Brooks like. What do, you, what do you think about in terms of how do you measure w- winning major championships versus PGA Tour event? Like, you know, the balance of winning a lot or winning the really big ones a lot? Well, I mean, Brooks, you obviously want to win. The majors are the pinnacle of the sport. And only the great players seem to win them more than once or twice. You know, I mean, it's only the truly greats who win multiples. I still think there's... Something impressive about the guys who play well every week they play and win piles of tournaments forever. Like they, they five, six, seven wins a year for 15, 20 years. I think it would be fun to see him win some more regular tour events. Not that it would make him any better or worse and yeah. whatever. I just think it's uh, those truly, truly like forever greats, you know, the Sam Sneeds and the Hogans and the Nelsons and the Nicholases and the Tigers. And they've won every size of event and they win everywhere they go you know i think that's really impressive nothing against brooks at all no. I, mean, I think it's ridiculous what he's doing i mean he could maybe he wins them all late you know maybe he just starts winning it's baffling to me how he can look that good in like the, in the majors i mean well, he was only one shot away at the masters too in the end you know like um you can look that good in the big tournaments and in the regular tournaments it's almost like it's not a big enough occasion for him or something you know or he's working on his game or he's tuning up for the majors. I don't know, but it's different. It's different how he plays in majors to normal tournaments. It is, it's, I don't know. There We had like, you know, there were some basketball players like uh, Robert Ory who would always hit big shots, like, you know, but like he wasn't like an all-time great. You know, he just would hit big shots. But like, you know, Robert Ory, you can't compare like a guy going out and winning four, four majors in you know, nine, nine attempts to mm-hmm. Robert Ory. But like, with Brooks, it's it's fast. It's so they the Superbook, it was like I think it's the longest bet they've ever like time wise they've ever put out, and they put out uh, Brooks seven and a half wins or seven and a half majors. Seven and a half. What's he won now? Five. Uh, four. Four. And it expires when he turns fifty. Wow, you'd probably take the over at this point. You know, he's won four in two years. But, I mean, who knows? I mean, you just don't know, right? How often do you see a guy have a run like this? And, I mean, two years ago, you would have said Jordan's going to win 15, right? And now it's two years later. I'm not saying he's not going to win 15, but no one's saying that anymore, right? It's hard Rory to... Rory too? Rory too, yeah. Time changes things. It's weird. I mean, you would have thought Ernie might have won a few more than he did, you know? And then Tiger came along. Um, you would have thought Phil would have won them earlier or Westwood would have won some. It's, uh, or Sergio wouldn't have taken so long, you know? Or Adam Scott. Or Justin Rose, you know, so it's a, they're hard ones to win. Uh, and you can, and who knows if there isn't a kid who's 21 right now who's already better than Brooks, you know, or he just needs a couple of years under his belt like Brooks had and then he goes and wins more and it gets harder and harder for every generation. That's the interesting thing with Brooks too is like he, he he's 29. Like it wasn't, 
I guess like Rory, we had this flurry when he was really young, and it's almost like he struggled. I wonder if like having it come a little bit later while still being young was almost like is almost a blessing for him. I think Brooks's the roadmap he's taken to get here is interesting, and I think more like junior golfers who have aspirations or who are going to potentially be that good should look at it. Going to Europe first and playing like the Challenge Tour, like the smallest tour in Europe. Um, just to get on the European Tour and he played in Europe for three or four years. Just because, I mean, to learn how to play everywhere around the world. So he just came back a more complete golfer. And the guys who win majors are complete players. You know, you have to have every shot and you have to be good at every aspect and you have to be good at the travel and learning a new course fast and dealing with adversity. And that's what happened when you play your first four or five years somewhere else, especially Europe, because you go to a different country every week and there's different currencies and languages and foods and um, maybe not the same conditioning you used to in america maybe and he just i think he just became such a more well-rounded player so i just think the roadmap he took to get here prepared him better than anyone else's path you know is is that do you think like you because you went and played europe right after you turned pro Uh for a while like is that the hardest part about like early in your career is like being a professional on the road like it's yeah i mean i was so enthusiastic at that point i didn't find it hard i just found it exciting right i'm just traveling around the world who doesn't travel want to travel around the world when they're 21 22 everybody kind of wants to right um and i was getting paid to do it so it was i thought it was exciting and i didn't do it as long as brooks brooks was there for a long time um four or five years i think in europe really total um and peter uline did the same thing they were kind of doing it at the same sort of time and peter's become a pretty well-rounded good player too you know um it's not that it's not great here, but playing the PGA, trying to get on the PGA Tour straight away, it'd be like trying to like get a hit from a major league pitcher from Little League. You know, like it's not that big a jump, but it's a pretty big jump. And you can get beaten over the head pretty quick. Um, I'm not saying it's not tough in Europe, but it's probably a little bit easier. There's a lot more tournaments to choose from. And again, you get a different environment and you've maybe got fields you you gradually can beat up on just a little bit quicker than you could beat up on the ones over here and you just build confidence and skill and uh yeah it's pretty it's 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 an interesting way he took because it's tight it would be tough for an american kid to do that it's easy for an australian kid to go to europe first right because you have to go somewhere first Mm -hmm. you do the stepping stone thing it makes sense but to leave your home country when you're a kid and go do that it's pretty brave um yeah, he, it just wasn't like he was a schmuck either. He was, you know, like all-American yeah. golfer. Was, you know. He could have tried the route that most people tried, um, but was he either got really good advice or was just had a kind of a, a bit of wisdom at the time and thought, you know, this is the path for me. And it, uh, wow, I mean, look at it. He's uh, he's the most rounded, complete golfer we've almost ever seen. Really, the way he's playing at the moment. The Q school also now still you can still go Q school and be on the European tour. Yeah, right? they like, still got a real Q school. Yeah, which is I I, I think there's something cool about it. But I then think we you should get, still like, have one. Hitter. I think we should still have one too. But um, even if it wasn't 25 cards, I just there was something really cool about you know zero to PGA tour in one week. You know, there's something about it. <laughs> yeah, it led to some guys that flamed out quick, but you know. It's, uh, yeah, but I mean, really like, through history of at least through my era of who i grew up with and who made it and who didn't i can't think of many who should have made it who didn't yeah you know like and then there's no should haves and you can't make predictions like that but 
by the time everyone was 30, the ones who you thought were going to make it, they all kind of found their way out there. Maybe it took them a couple more years than they wanted, but usually the ones who are supposed to get out there, get out there. I mean, Jordan, someone like Jordan, for example, he missed it second stage. Yeah. And then six months later, he was like, top number one in the world or something. Like he was just, it was inevitable that he was going to get on tour, right? So missing second stage didn't matter. He just found a different way to get on. Uh, but Q score was a good thing. How, uh, Usually, you know, you know, like certain guys, like what are, what are the things that like, you know, a guy is going to make it versus a guy that like, maybe they have comparable amateur, but like, you know, one guy is surefire and one guy's maybe. I don't know. I think this, I mean, these are intangibles, right? But you just, I don't know. The guy who makes that great up and down to stay one in front in the 17th hole somewhere, or like just, they do that key stuff. I mean, there's plenty of guys who hit it well and putt well and. That it's part of that too. Like some guys just make golf look easy, right? It's yeah. Just easier than it looks for everyone else. You know, Adam Scott at fourteen looked like he was going to be number one in the world. It just looked like it. You know, he just it was just easier for him. But then there's other guys you just see it in their eyes at the right moments. So you know they finish off tournaments really well, or they compete really on the harder courses, maybe better than the other courses. They handle situation like situations that not everyone handles well. I don't know intangible sort of stuff, but you can tell when you see someone who. There's no again. There's no guarantees, but you can usually tell the ones who have got a little bit more something than the others. Who's the guy that you? Were, oh, at least I can in golf. Most surprised that didn't get to where you thought he might. It, it might, could have been injury too. In my know. era, Joel Kribel was an incredible player. Um, yeah. He was kind of second ranked amateur around after Tiger, right? Florida um, Tech, right? Stanford. Stanford. Kribel went at the oh, same yeah. time as. Uh, Tiger. Lost to him in the semifinals, I think, of his last US Am. He looked the real deal. He was really special. I mean, he won the Western Am that I went to, like, and no one even got close to him. Like, it was, this guy's pretty amazing. I can't think of many others, though. He got injured when he, when he was turning and got back injury and never really kind of made it back. So, it didn't kind of work out for him. But I'm sure there's been a few. I mean, there's always a few that slip through the cracks, right? They get hurt at the wrong time. I mean, Patrick Cantlay, he's kicking goals now but he kind of got set back a little bit with a bad back at the wrong time you know you don't have a bad week i mean jordan as i said spieth missed second stage at q school he nearly had to have a year off right when he was turning pro so um it's a tough deal to get on tour yeah they and now with this new schedule it makes it like even more interesting how you would go about it as a college kid like because you know like there'd be two there's two real routes you can do the latin america canada tour thing to try to get top five on them to get on the web and then the web you can try to get up or do you go to europe and really back yourself and say i'm going to go to europe or asia and try to get top 50 in the world and start getting invites and go that way it's almost there's no easier way i mean each model would work for different people but you might become a more rounded player if you went to europe route you know what i mean you mean you might never get to top 50 in the world i mean that's quite hard to get to the top 50 in the world right and you might even not get on the european tour but um that's really the only two methods is come up off the web or come through top 50 in the world you know so yeah that like kitayama guy uh kurt kitayama had no status and he got he went through european tour q school american guy he's won three times this year in europe in Europe. Wow, there you go. So he's on his way, right? I mean, yeah. his ranking must be getting up there. Um, it, exactly. Yeah. It's like, it's unbelievable. You know, he went three. But like, think about how much his life changed. He probably was, you know, yeah. pondering 
what am I doing? What am I going to do, right? <laughs> to, to now he's won three times. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm, I'm the second biggest tour in the, in the world. Yeah, I mean, Europe, I mean, you can see. I mean, the Ryder Cup proves it. I mean, those guys can go. Like, mm-hmm. they can really play. Do you think there, what's the difference in the style of play between the two tours? Like, is there a noticeable difference between setup or golf courses, or is it just the diversity of where you are? Yeah, well, the golf courses, I mean, America's had a pretty big influence, at least on competitive golf around the world. The places that you play are similar style than you play on the PGA Tour, mostly. But you do, again, you're going to some pretty crazy places, so grass is different everywhere. Um, mostly newer courses, because they're the ones who have the money, the, promote, the, the owners and the promoters to kind of um, show off their golf course. That's kind of half the reason golf tournaments are on sometimes. Um you just go to so many different places. It's probably, and the conditioning is probably a little bit more inconsistent. You can, you still have some, you don't get bad green weeks on the PGA Tour very often or bad fairways or weird weather might create some, but it's generally pretty perfect every week. Europe, less so, right? Because you go to some non-golf countries and you go to Germany. I mean, they've had some good golfers, but they don't really have many golfers there. So they don't really have to spend the money on their golf courses and you go to Russia or they don't have hardly got any golf courses and, um, so in Turkey, they're playing in Turkey now, Saudi Arabia now, like Dubai, Kenya. Abu Dhabi, Kenya. They play everywhere, right? So you're um, – and travel always makes, I don't know, adds a bit of wisdom to people or like roundedness or common sense or something, right? Because you just see every different sort of condition and every sort of different level of frustration that you just get better at dealing with stuff. And I think that aspect is the most important thing about that tour. I mean, you probably get it to the Latin America tour as well and mm-hmm. you're going to play Canada and driving around in a car like some of those guys do or something. I mean, that would be like really great too, I think. Yeah. Um, but zero college to the PGA Tour is, I mean, I know they're trying to kind of create a faster route from college to PGA Tour, but that's that's a road that's not many guys are ready for. That's a fast That's a fast track. I wouldn't have been close to ready. Yeah. yeah. Is that So getting back to US Open, so we saw Beth Page like, he kind of, he predicted a little bit. It was going to be a high ball hitter. You, we saw DJ, um, DJ Brooks. Brooks were the two picks, yeah. And then and then Rory, who had a dismal first twenty seven holes, managed to you know last forty five. He was better than everybody, you know. Yeah. Worked his way up to t t eighth. So you know, with that that golf course, like clearly set up for that type of player. Like if you wanted to create, you know, set up a golf course for where any style player in the field could win how would you set it up well you do you pebble would be pretty close um this week everyone's got a chance i think it's uh it's not long it's long for a normal golf course sakes but it's not long for us open and it doesn't see beth page is long but it plays way longer because you go up to all the greens and it's all carried you can't run it on any of the greens pebble you could probably play it along the ground almost some of it um so it'll certainly suit. I mean, a longer hitter always has an advantage, but mm-hmm. it's uh, nullified here a little bit. Um, they have the advantage of being able to hit less club onto the fairways. That's always going to be an advantage. Hit three wood instead of driver and stuff like that. But it's such a experience, um, strategic kind of test. It's more about that kind of that kind of canny golf skill. You know, missing it around the greens in the right place and having all the little kind of shots around the greens and. Um, and being absolutely impeccable from inside 10 feet because you just can't have short par putts at Pebble. It's really difficult. They're so slopey, 
And uh, this West Coast grass, this power when it gets uh, firm, like when the USGA get it firm, which Thursday is not going to be like that. By Sunday it will. They get very difficult to uh, get your speed right on such slopes. So you're going to have three, four, five footers for power all day. So the, the real magic skill is a great putter, a great short putter, I would think. Mm-hmm. Add, add and I think in 2000, Tiger was like, 100% from inside 10 feet or something ridiculous. Stuff he like might have that. been that whole year, 100% from... You know, McDowell's an incredible short putter. He's a, He talked about last time, the greens kind of got a bit ropey in the afternoons last time in 2010, and he couldn't understand what everyone was talking about. He thought the greens were rolling perfect. So, you know, when you're putting well, you're putting well. So, I mean, it could be a speeth week. You know, it's, it, it, uh, it plays into him. If he was playing at his best, um, this would be like right down Jordan's straight i would have thought yeah he always plays well at pebble too in the at&t mm-hmm. so, so i don't it, it, it's got a lot of similarities with augusta in the way of like the skills a lot of fast greens really f- tricky around the greens and fast and side slopes you're hitting off side slopes which is yeah so shape becomes really important right because the shape is getting dictated to you by the slope but you kind of sometimes want to have the other shape so it's real skill that can do that mm-hmm um, so real form, I should say. I mean, everyone can do it out here. It's just it's, it's guys in form that'll do that. What do you think about? So with uh, open, you you win, you go to sixty. Uh, Masters lifetime, PGA pretty much lifetime, and then U.S. Open ten years. It's perfect. <laughs> I mean, because there's no other tournament like the U.S. Open. The Masters has proven that you can compete with wisdom and experience. To India, sixties, right? I mean, plenty of guys have shown it over the years. I mean, Jack nearly won it at fifty-eight. Freddie's been in contention for the last twenty years. Um, Watson had a bit of a run at some point. Like, you can play Augusta for what you lose in distance. You continue to gain in experience. So it's just you're not making up the numbers when you're fifty-five at the Masters if you're Fred Couples. You're actually a real threat for the tournament. Um, the Open is probably similar. I mean, they're getting longer, the Opens. But again, um, we saw Tom win it when he was 60, right? Nearly win it when he was 60. So, like, it's uh, that's doable too. The PGA, probably not so much, but that's just the way they do it. But the US Open, I mean, 10 years out of winning, you could really be in different form. You know, it's a long time. And the US Open is the ultimate test. And if you are not playing really, really well, you're going to go for a lot. And it would kind of... Well, one, it would be embarrassing, um, and it just—it's just not fair on the guy. It's almost fairer to say, "Look, you know what? If you—if you're still exempt, that's great because you're still playing well. But if you've not done well for the last ten years, we're going to look after you and not make you do it." <laughs> I get, and it would make it less open. Yeah, it would make it less open too. So that makes uh, more sense too, because it is nice that it's effectively a hundred percent a qualifying field. Really, I mean, the PGA, the top fifty in the world, guys they've kind of qualified because they've qualified through their last two years of play, right? Um, the uh, And the rest of the field is qualifiers. I mean, it's truly, what, 70 or 80 or 90 qualifying spots, I think, in this field. I mean, that's really good. Is uh, is sectional qualifying like the least covered event in, in professional golf? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. It's a pretty – they're interesting days. I mean, they're every nobody likes them, Um not tour guys don't like them. I mean, I'm sure like if the US Open is your thing and you're you're an am and you're a club golfer and you have a normal job and you play really well enough to get in the sectional, it's the biggest day of the year, right? It's a really yeah. good thing. 
But for tour guys who have just come off like four tournaments in a row to go out and play 36 holes around one course on a Monday um, is not everyone's favorite. And there's, a, there's a, a lot of attrition. Like on the second round, there's nobody there in the second round because anyone who shoots over par on the first round just goes home. Um, but there's some cool stuff there. They could get, they could make some good TV there because there's a lot of drama. Like especially, you've always got that young Am kid who's like right on the line and he's waiting at the 18th green and you get the grizzled old pro who's the only one who can knock him off his spot, shoot 66 in his second round, and then the little kid gets sad or the little kid makes it and there's a playoff with seven guys for two spots and everyone watches and there's some fun stuff that happens and it's kind of a throwback. It feels like amateur golf a little bit. A lot of guys are carrying their bags and um. All the local club, the, the members all come out to watch and there's like the, the leaderboard with the someone's just filling in all yeah, the boxes with the sharpies cool. and stuff or like the chisel point doing all the nice graphics and stuff. It's like, um, it's just, it's a bit of a throwback. Playing 36 in a day. I love playing 36 in a day. I wish we did that more. Um, I just think the day, you, you can find yourself, you can get such, you can get into such sweet patches of form when you have that long to kind of find your swing for the day and, um, playing a course twice in a day, I always liked the second lap because you learn all your stuff on the first lap. And, I don't know they're good things. It'd be a good you could watch, you could make some pretty good TV out of it if they condensed it. I mean, it's a long day, but you condense and make some sort of little package out of it. It'd be fun. Yeah, thirty six is is such a. It's like a. <laughs> I always think after the thirty six whole days, like you get in your car and you're driving somewhere, and it, it's like you've been like in a completely different world for. Yeah. It's like you, you like escape reality, but then I always think that the the back nine and the first nine or of the second round, the back nine of the first round, first nine of the second rounds, like that. If you're playing good, like those eighteen holes are like yeah. going to be about best eighteen holes of golf you could possibly play. Yeah, I just like I always loved it. I just I miss thirty six in a day. I mean, I would have trouble walking around it at the moment, but uh. And amateur tournaments, we used to play 36-36. We'd do Saturday, Sunday, 36-36. You wouldn't even think of it and then do it the next weekend. But those qualifiers are... Uh, they're fun. They're fun because like... There's all manner of different like levels of intensity and attitude on guys. and You have to go really low. You have to play really well. The first one I first started playing them, I was really surprised at like... You see the scores and you're like, well, that course must have been easy. But then you go there and you shoot 268 and you're eight under and you miss by two. It's like, wow, this is like, it's the next level. The level is really high. I think there's something too, like the with the qualifiers where there's this like, I guess, and if you covered it, would lose this a, a little. Is like where there's like this added shred of like doubt and you don't know what's going on. Like where like you don't, and that's like one of the toughest things to deal with when you're playing is like thinking about the number. Yeah. But you have no clue. Nobody knows even, you know, you're out there and you're like, nobody knows, but, you know, you think it's good enough. Eventually, you just, I don't know. It's- you kind of get an idea, I guess, but you really don't because it's always lower than you think, you know. You think, oh, 600 will make it this course, like when you're nine holes in or something, and then it ends up being 11, right? It's like, well, sometimes it's the other way, obviously, if you're playing really well, but that's that's the best, that's the thing you miss in pro golf when you, like you are, uh, an amateur golf that walk from 18 that really fast walk from this from putting your card in to go see the board to see if you did any good or not because you didn't know what anyone had so to walk over and see the guy filling in all the boxes with the sharpie and i think that's just a good moment in golf it's like the the leaderboard's getting flipped up at the masters you know there's a bit of suspense 
Mm-hmm. You know, and then you're sitting waiting for everybody to come in. That's the worst. And you're going through the things. Yeah. Oh, he had 68 in the first round, so he could do it. And you pick out the three or four guys who were coming that could actually knock you out. It's like, it's just the, uh, it's just a fun. I just really like that scene. It's just a good scene. And the whole qualifier, that's what it is. There's 50 guys standing around the board at the end, wondering what's going to happen, and talking about all their stories from the golf day and how unlucky they got. And yeah, it's fun. It's uh, yeah. It's- talk about that i mean that's this is a whole rabbit hole it's the u.s open week we're talking about qualifiers um so with uh your u.s open experience let's take the wing foot out of it like what was the what was the next best u.s open it was it was it all pain and suffering at the u.s open or what was the next pain and suffering what was your next favorite you know kind of experience with it tory was my next favorite um I played second last group on Sunday with Rocco. Oh, my God. Yeah, so I was in a pretty good spot. Um, Tiger and Westwood were in the last group. We were in the second last group. And I played pretty well. I think I was like, I don't know if I was ever in the lead, but I might have been tied or one back going up nine. And I plugged one in the par five, nine at Torrey. It's like 7,000 yards long. And I plugged it in the fairway bunker and then laid it up and like got it out and then went for the green and plugged it with my third shot in the bunker. I had two plugs in one hole or something. made bogey and never really... Fried egg lives, again. Fried yeah, eggs, man. <laughs> and then uh, ended up eighth or seventh or eighth or something like that. But I just I had the Rocco show, so Rocco played great all day. Tiger and Westwood behind us, so San Diego, and that, he was at the peak of his powers. Tiger with yeah. the knee thing, and like they were just, and it was his town, and they're going nuts. And Rocco, everybody loves Rocco, and it was really really fun. And uh, Rocco finishes on eighteen, and Tiger's one back now, right? He's laid it up in the rough and we were standing around. I had the little gaggle of people and Rocco had the big gaggle of reporters around him while Tiger makes that big putt. And the noise was just outrageous. I mean, it was pretty special. But I really enjoyed that open. Again, West Coast, we stayed in like Del Mar, looked at the ocean every day and like 70 degrees. And Torrey, it was the one time I really enjoyed playing Torrey. Like it was firm and the greens were decent. Um it's so tough in the tournament in January that it's just it beats you around the head because it plays so long because it's cold and it's soft and it was I had a great time. That was my second favorite, easily my second favorite. I saw I was reading about '06 and uh, I saw like one of the quotes that stuck out was like how good Poulter was to play with, like in the final round. Like, what do you do? You think there's something about like when you're coming down the stretch, like your playing partner in in situations like that? Oh yeah, I mean, I knew Poulter really well by that point. I mean, socially we'd hung out and um, we'd played in Europe together a fair bit, uh, so I knew him really well. And we're kind of similar age, and so it was just, I think, being with one of your boys um, helps, you know. Or maybe it can hurt in some situations, but for me it was great because he was. His energy was why well, if he wasn't going to win it, then he wanted me to win it, right? So you mm-hmm. can then that's kind of, there's something about that, you know. If a guy can be obstreperous out there and act a bit like I don't know, whatever, if he's not that into you winning, then it's different. I don't know. It just had good energy, and he was. Uh, it was just fun to be with one of your mates when you win the tournament, and the scorers hut with him was, was the best because we kind of watched the Phil show unfold a little bit on the TV in the scorers hut. Um, and he was just, you could just look in his eye when Phil ends up hitting his second shot and hits the tree and it drops and starts looking good for me. The look in Polter's eye was like, he had this little glimmer in his eye like, this is going to work out pretty well. He was just genuinely happy for me. And it was nice to be with someone like 
You know, he was just because I would have been happy for him to win. It would have been great. I don't know if I would have been as genuinely happy as he seemed. He was just really pumped that his playing partner and his friend is about to win this tournament. It was just a nice group, you know. Mm-hmm. He wore all pink too. Pink shoes, pink socks, pink pants, belt, everything on Father's Day in New York. So it was pretty brave. So he took all the attention away, which was great too. <laughs> that, that was during uh, Poulter's uh, apparel era. Like, you know, he wore, he wore that all gold that one time. Yeah. Remember that uh, that gold? I, I Whenever I think Ian Poulter, I think about the, that outfit. I can't get it out Pretty of brave man. Like, uh, not short on confidence with his uh, apparel. His stories, um, I mean, when he turned pro, he was a four handicap. Like, legend, who does man. that? Just a legend. Like, he, if there's any, uh, like, a, like, a case that you can talk yourself into something if you want it bad enough, he talked himself into it, you know? I mean, there's clearly people with more physical skills, but he has turned himself into, like, just an outrageously good player. And under pressure, he is just, I mean... He has the respect of the whole locker room because the stuff he does in the Ryder Cup is just on another level. Like it's outrageous how good he is. His story is incredible. Yeah, he's. A, he, I think he, he obviously gets a. He gets under people's skin. So, like you know, I think from, from like a fan perspective, you know, there's a lot in in New York. He just in all pink. He just had to be. Uh, I mean, it's kind of rubbing it in their face, right? Because it's exactly what they don't want their golfers to be wearing in New York. I say, I feel like, and it's just. Uh, but he. He banters back fun with them and like they end up loving him, right? Because he's great to them. What was that with Phil? Like, you know, he's like the New York guy and like being in the mix with Phil in the mix at a US Open. Like, did it feel like a, like more of a atmosphere of like a, I don't know if President's Cup ever has had like an atmosphere like a Ryder Cup, but like that Ryder Cup where you were playing like almost against the hometown crowd, like you were at an away game, like if it was like a NBA finals. It's certainly in the last nine holes when it became apparent that he might win, it was very pro Phil, but it wasn't anti anybody else. It was mm-hmm. just pro Phil. Um, they love him. I mean, they, they just love him so much. And the way he was playing that week, he was driving in the rough, making a crazy par, driving in the rough, making birdie out of the rough. Like he was doing crazy stuff from crazy places. And it was just, Probably really great fun to watch the way he was doing it, but yeah, the last he made, I think he made birdie on fourteen when we were on the fifteenth tee, and it was like really out of the rough, and he hit it to four feet or five feet, and they just went absolutely ballistic when he made made the putt. It was like, wow, this is these these people want this guy to win really bad. I mean, I'm kind of sad for them in, in the end because like they were like it was their man's week, right? How much were you like paying attention to the the leaderboard when you were in the hunt in tournaments coming down the stretch? Normally, quite a lot. I never really found it weird to see my name on it, so I didn't. I never noticed myself react negative, weird, like play poorly after looking at it. So I never really came up with a reason to not look at it. Um, but that week, for whatever reason, whether there weren't many or whatever, I didn't really look much on the back nine maybe i knew that it was better for me to not um and i had i knew i was i think i was two back with four to play maybe and uh i was kind of losing my head a little bit and frustrated because i think i bogeyed 14 and phil birdied 14 so maybe i was even three back at that point i don't know probably two back um and squirrel my caddy just said look let's no one's going to part the last four holes let's just part the last four holes and who knows? No one's going to do that. So let's just do that. You'll be really close if you do that. So I kind of like, for whatever reason, had this moment of 
being sensible for once on the golf course and i actually really did just try to par 15 and then when i got to 16 i'm like oh, i just make par because it seemed like such a ridiculous proposition it kind of forced me to just think about the next shot in front of me like to par the last four holes that's how hard it seemed like a proposition so i didn't even be like running a marathon it's like let's just run the first mile so here we go and i it was one of the only times in my life that i, I was actually like that like properly one shot at a time or one hole at a time Part 15, part 16, made a good up and down from short of the green on 16, drove it in the trees on 17 and ended up chipping in for par. <laughs> I, didn't, I mean, I, my ball never really was on the green except yeah. when it was rolled into the hole. Um, and then 18 made a great par in the end. I got hit a great drive, got unlucky. It went into a divot that was kind of like an old sandy divot and hit a decent second shot, I thought. And I was actually posing. I thought I'd actually stiffed it. It was right at it. But, and I thought it had landed like a foot short of where it needed to, but it, you watch on TV, it probably landed five yards short of where it needed to. Um, and it was probably the sand in the divot that made it go shorter than I thought it was going to go. Mm-hmm. It didn't, I felt like I got all ball, but, you know, sandy divots is just not quite the same as grass. Got up there and had a filthy little pitch. But the thing that I, the first time I really noticed that I knew the true state of affairs is when I got to that green after I'd missed it short. We got up there. The leaderboard was to the left of the green, which and it's kind of a dog leg left wing foot. So you can't see the leaderboard till you get to the green. Um, but Monty had made six, not five. We knew Monty had made bogey. We saw him miss a putt on the green and there was a groan and we knew he'd missed the green. But I guess he'd three putted. So he'd made double so it wasn't until then i'd had that pitch shot the third shot on 18 that i knew that it was phil was the only one in front of me and if i got up and down i was second on my own um we figured i was on the same score as monty because we thought he'd made bogey made double though so that made me a little bit i still thought i was going to get up and down and finish second at this point with a real chance at a playoff you know that kind of went through my head it's like back that was 18 whole playoff days too so like new hotel room, like what am I going to do? Like all this stuff. So, so you were thinking about that, kind of. I mean, it, like it flashed into my head, like, <laughs> oh wow, I could because for the previous three holes, I kind of thought I wasn't. I didn't think about winning or anything because I thought I wasn't going to win. I just figured Phil was going to because, as I said, I was at least two back, I think, and there were no birdies to be had. So, um, hit a really good pitch. It was an easy pitch, probably to hit to fifteen feet because mm-hmm. it kind of goes up again past the hole. So. But a hard one to hit to four or five or whatever. I hit. I hit a really good one and it came out nicely and spun and did everything it needed to do. So that was nice that I didn't, that I gave myself a nice, relatively simple putt out. It was downhill, but it was downhill inside right. You could just get it moving and it was going to go in if you started in the right spot. So, and then, yeah, Phil did what he did. So when I, when I made it, I, when I was putting it, like I thought it was a really good chance for a playoff because 18 is really hard. Right. Yeah. And and you, I think there was no balls that we could see on the fairway. Um, but I didn't. Uh, I never thought that would be to win the tournament outright ever. No, it never entered my head. I mean, who thought who was going to think that he would make double? That that Johnny call was pretty epic. My a buddy of mine sent me that, like, because he had a fr- fried egg. In it, yeah, yeah. The way Johnny says the Friday, like, and it's just funny how. But like, I was listening, I was like, it's an epic, you know, call. But with that that pitch shot, I mean, I've I've always thought like a really tough pitch that you hit the pitch just right is one of the greatest feelings in golf. Mm -hmm. Like right when you hit it, you know it was just perfect. Oh, it was ridiculous. Like I've been working on it for my pitching more than anything else for a long time. Just. 
for a few different reasons but there's that one shot and i think only really really great short games actually have ever felt that perfect like elite golfers have felt that one that just comes out so perfect you know just grabs on the face properly and it flights a little bit lower or whatever and it's spinning and it's like it's a one in five even when you're pitching it well right yeah with balladas it was a little bit easier but like these days it's just and you've got to have really good grooves and clean and a good line everything's got to work right and and when you do it even when you're practicing you're like look around so did anyone say that how good was that i mean it's just a special feeling and it came out like that. And like, it hits so it's the spot amazing. you want. Yeah. And then it grabs just right. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. Just, uh, it reminded me that pitch and Justin Rose's and, yeah. and Marion. They, like, those, they were very similar. Like, like they, but, and maybe that's like the thing is like with the Masters, like everybody, like, oh, you know, the US Open, like, but like that, that shot in golf is, is unbelievably fun to watch is like the, the recovery shot. And, yeah. And I think there's something like Masters. You we think about the approaches and everything, and and the Open is you got the elements and everything. And the U.S. Open sometimes people are like, well, they're just getting beat over the head. But like, those are the shots that kind of win. And they're the shots that like move the needle in the locker room. If you like, the people got the guys in the locker room get really excited about are the great short game shots that just mm-hmm. the freakish ones. You know, there are, uh, and you have to have a freakish green a week around the greens, especially at Pebble, because I mean. They are so small. I mean, 12 grains a day would be really impressive here, you know. So that's six up and downs a day. That's 24 for the week. Like, that's a lot of times you've got to get up and down at a long stuff to really slope your grains. So. The other thing with the with the pitches is that's where I feel like the nerves can get you the most. Short grass like yeah. pitches with a wedge, yeah, with a lob wedge or something. They, You can get them wrong for sure. They're the one, Well, they're the ones when you see guys have issues with their pitching like Tiger did a few years ago. That's the one that you don't want, you know. You're not rough under the ball. No one gets the flubs out of the rough. I mean, you might not hit good shots, but you don't fat them or thin them out of the rough. But off the short grass, that's where you, that's that's when you know you're pitching it well. When you could you could hit pitch shots off a putting green and it would go well, you know. Yeah, it's it's so true. It's I, I mean the the short game and stuff. I think I I don't know. What did you think about Aaron Hills a few years ago? Like. From the idea, you know, people are always about thick rough, but like the short grass around the greens. I think if the course suits short grass, then I like short grass around the greens. I think it's a, it's in sometimes it's an it's an easier test for a good pitcher, and it's a harder test for a bad pitcher. You know, a bad short game, and I think that's kind of what you want, right? You want the guys who are playing well, who have the complete game, to be able to separate themselves. I think sometimes. Some courses just don't lend themselves to that yeah. setup, and I think sometimes rough around the greens. It's not my. F- if I was going to build a course from scratch, you would always try to build it where balls were going to roll off round greens like they do at the Masters or something. But sometimes I think rough around the greens is a good test, especially if it's varying rough. I'm not sure if I love the uniform stuff. It's a relatively the same shot you have to play out. Doesn't matter where you go when it's that perfect four inch high rye grass. It's all in a dead straight vertical. I think sometimes. That's a little bit kind of boring. I like that kind of gnarly kind of variable rough that you get in the fescue at Shinnecock or um, in Britain, you get some pretty gnarly stuff. And I think that, again, the really gifted short games, which is what you're trying to find in a golf tournament is the gifted, the good guys, right? The guys who are playing their best. The more variety you give them around the greens, I think that's maximum chance for the best golf, the cream to rise to the top in the end. Variable testing. People people talk about the identity of the U.S. Open. 
what what would you say is your the, the identity of the U.S. Open? What's the hardest test relative to par in golf? So par um, is a, a central piece of it. Well, they think it is. I don't think it is. Um, but there are. I mean, I would argue that there are just as difficult as shots on weeks where we shoot fifteen under. You know what I mean? But maybe the par is a little different and stuff sometimes. Um, it's it's like it's a battle. They have a tournament at Whisperock um, once a year where they put the pins on sides of hills and it's crazy stuff. And the tees, your, your right foot's off the back of the tee on every hole. It's called the Battle of Attrition. I think the US Open is the Battle of Attrition. That's his identity. Um, part, they just have this obsession, it seems like. They're, hopefully they're losing it now but or they're drifting away from it to get us to shoot around par somewhere. And that's, I think, probably where they go wrong because sometimes that's just not possible unless there's weather involvement, you know, or if, if it's too soft or something. So, so, And then they'll just go nuts with the greens just to keep us somewhere near par, you know what I mean? I just think uh, just find a setup that allows the guys who are playing their best that week separate themselves. I don't yeah. think the score is... I don't think it matters. I think the US Open generally does that. I mean, you can't fake it at a US Open. You have to be playing well. You know, you really do. You can't You can't get away with a bad driver that week or a bad putter or a bad anything, right? I mean, in a normal week, maybe you can kind of get... The talented guys can get away with something being a little bit off, but not at the US Open. Battle of attrition. It's just every shot is the... Every hole is the hardest hole at your home club. Okay. set up as hard as it can and you do that 72 holes in, t- holes in a row like it's just there's never a let up i imagine like u.s open rounds when you get off the course did was did you feel different than uh say a normal pga tour event yeah fatigued you know that i mean anyone who's ever played competitive golf who like knows they have to par the last nine holes or do do a stretch of holes and it's in a really good score to like get to make a card or to make the match play at your club championship or whatever it is. And you you hold that kind of whatever it is, that focus tension or whatever in your head, that really intensity, I guess it is. Um, that has to be high when you play US Open. So you feel, I think, after a Thursday, especially if you're doing well, if you're doing poorly, I think you kind of mail it in a little bit just because you focus on, oh, how bad is my score? How hard is this? But when you're kind of playing well, you just hang on to that tension and that anxiety and the intensity it's a bit of a not many people grind on the range of the US Open after they play I mean the guys still do but way less than a normal tournament yeah it's tiring it's super tiring mentally tiring because yeah. every shot's the hardest shot you've ever had almost it feels like sometimes you play Oakmont and every hole's the hardest hole you've ever played and you go to it 18 times in a row and every time you miss a shot you make a bogey like that's, that's a level of intensity or pressure or something on every shot that's not normal what what do you think would happen if they changed the par? Say they say they made Pebble par sixty nine. You know, guys are hitting mid irons into eighteen. Guys are hitting, you know, they're hitting the only real par five where you know the the definition of par in nineteen eleven was that uh, ideal shots from tee to green allowing for two putts. Well, I think it would be interesting. I think some guys would have different scores. Don't you think? Like if you made 18 a par four for one tournament 
and you made 18 in the par 5 for the tournament the next week and everything else was exactly the same, the scoring average would be different. They'd score, Don't you think? They'd score better. At par 69? I think so. I mean, that's what... They say they see with this loss aversion stuff, but like, but then all of a sudden, like, if Pebbles a par sixty nine, like, you don't have to do anything crazy to have score be around par. No, that would be interesting. Yeah, that's like what. I, and and if you want the definition of par, like, because it, it's all based off this history, right? But par is arbitrary. You can draw the line in the sand wherever you want. It's exactly. us. It's our perception of whether over par or under par is a good score or not. It doesn't really mean anything, right? Exactly. Like you know, like and this is the thing is like for some, why did par become a, a determinant of difficulty when it's just made up? And, and it's like nobody would say like if you played pebble in the U.S. Open, then you play it on a Sunday morning in April with you know after it rained you know an inch and there's no wind like be completely different golf course yeah and oakmont at a par 78 isn't necessarily an easy course it's no. still just the same shots right it's still really really hard yeah you know? just because you're six under doesn't mean it's easy mm-hmm. you know every shot's been just as hard to shoot 72 as it was being two over at 72 you know it's the same because mm-hmm. it's a mental difference though. It, it made me think about trinity forest too when i started thinking about this is like, oh trinity forest is easy because they're shooting 23 under it's like well you got mid iron into one everybody's going for seven mm-hmm. you know five is Everybody can get home, you know? Yeah, I played short last year. So then all of a sudden you got, it's like if it was par 68 and 11 under wins instead of 23 under, would people say it's easy? No, of course they wouldn't. No. So it's like the problem with the USGA, this par thing is a real thing, right? Well, it is, but it shouldn't be, right? It, yeah, because it's not, it's, that's it not a difficulty, right? Yeah. Because something can be difficult, and you could shoot sixty-five. Yeah, but if everybody shoots, you know, seventy, you still played really good. It would be. I would rather than see them defend par by changing par than changing the course, which is kind of what you're saying. Yeah, that's what. Um, I... Or manipulating the course. I mean, it should be at its most difficult, right? It should be like the club championship in any club. It should be back tees. It should be the greens as good and fast and firm as you can make them sensibly. And your four toughest pins. It should be. Yeah. You know? And if that has us shooting 18 under par and that makes the USGA not happy, then, yeah, change the par. Don't manipulate the course and put the pins on sides of hills and grow the rough crazy long and do crazy stuff. Just have it. I don't know. It'd be an interesting way to do it. I don't know. I think you just want to see the guy who plays the best be able to showcase his skills and win. You know? Like Pebble here in 2000. I mean, the, the best player in the world clearly found the course pretty playable and no one else did so he it it gave the best player in the world the best canvas possible to win and so does St Andrews because he won by nine like 10 minutes later right so two completely different courses that found the best golfer in the world and no one could catch him a bad setup in that era would have been one that Tiger didn't win by a lot you know because those those setups allowed him to show he was the best and if, as long as it allows that, I don't think it matters what the score is. Is there one that sticks out like that was where you felt like it, the most where it wasn't, you know, the best player, you know, didn't, they might have won, but they, you know, they, it was hard to separate. Um, I thought Chambers was hard to separate. I think the best player ended up winning mm-hmm. and it was a great leaderboard in the end. So, um, but that would have been a hard one to separate because you just couldn't make any putts. You just couldn't, like, it just wasn't possible. 
Would that be a good um, venue if they fix the if the greens the grass or? It's an interesting venue. Like, the it's a weird property that there's about five or six holes that go up and down this just massive cliff at the edge of this quarry, and I don't like those holes at all. But all the ones on the bottom I thought were really cool, mm-hmm. and I think the fine fescue open was good for the open. I like that kind of linksy. It's not linksy, but the ball running like a lynx course, running 50, 60, 70 meters, and like going over these hills and running down slopes and i think it's a different style of test great players generally play well when it gets like that yeah so that's kind of why i like that i mean the punish number two is completely unique for us open but it's perfect you're going to find a good player there because and keimer separated there. separated like truly separated um see that's a punish is maybe a little bit too far around the greens because karma chipping would be his achilles heel if he has one mm-hmm. and because chipping is so hard there then he actually he didn't have his weakness wasn't necessary he didn't have to expose his weakness because you can putt from everywhere at Pinehurst you know so he didn't have to chip um it's interesting that what's seen as a short game test might actually be more of a long game test you know like yeah I guess yeah because he could putt everywhere because he could putt from everywhere he didn't have to use his loft so that's Um, the argument he can't chip but if he has a weakness it would be in that area so me putts from everywhere and he's an incredible ball striker but yeah that great players and he's a great player clearly um thrive when it gets fiery you know like so i kind of and chambers gets super fiery that was as fiery as i've seen it open so i think in some respects it's a good venue but i think you'd have trouble getting the players to go back <laughs> to go back there without complaining because it was pretty poor the greens were bad yeah not there for no one's fault they lost them but and, and it was they lost them too late and you couldn't save them but um we had best of it. I mean, it was incredible weather. We had 85 degrees and sun for seven days straight. Huge Seattle. crowds, too. Huge crowds. They, they love it up there. It would be great. I mean, it's, it's, it's a it shame too. there isn't more places up in the Pacific Northwest. Because, like, this is the best. West Coast Open, by far the best. Because, like, you know, everybody gets to watch the most golf yeah. of any Open. Like, And it's predictable weather. You yeah. know, it never rains in the West Coast in summer, ever. You know, and it's nice all day and it's a good temperature and like you say the east coast tv it's perfect everyone gets home from work and watches you know mm-hmm. perfect yeah and they just need more good golf courses on the west coast well there's plenty you know california's got two coming up right it's got this and in la in two years yeah yeah and oh. no tory in two years and then la in a couple more years after that so they're coming here a lot tory's in a couple of years right yeah yeah they got two years that's a good open tory's a good open it's uh you know it's, it's It'll surprise you, I promise you. It's a great open. It is. If it's like it was last time, it's brilliant. It's uh What made uh, the Tiger one? What made Wingfoot so tough in 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 06? Well, it was the first year they did the graduated rough, so the rough was playable. Um it was the first year we could miss a fairway by three or four yards and move it somewhat near the green. I mean it wasn't like you could get a five iron on it, but you could back foot a nine on or an eight on and hack it up somewhere around the green and hope you could get it up and down. Whereas before it was just get the, get the sandwich out mm-hmm. and the US Open up to that point. So that was different. So that was kind of easier, but the greens at Wingfoot are brutally hard, really back to front pitched greens with like kind of waves and stuff in them. They're really tricky. Um, and their power, they get ropey when you push them really, really firm and they were kind of difficult to putt on. Um, beaten up i would have called them on thursday and friday afternoon and when they're fu- really fast really slopey with a little bit of ropiness about them it gets really tough and it's just naturally it's a tough course it's like oakmont it's one of those just 
naturally difficult courses that you, there's really no good places to miss it on some holes and the greens play really effectively small and um, my shot game was just outrageous at that point so I didn't really I did it because I got up and down a lot mm-hmm. kind of had to do you expect a similar like scoring next year um, I think golf is golf, the standard of golf is generally higher than it was then mm-hmm. um, there's more good players I mean we were playing great golf we thought we were playing great golf and clearly Tiger was playing as good as anybody kind of around that era but that was um, the first time he missed a cut in like forever his father had just died a oh. year yeah, so Phil won the Masters, and he won Hoy Lake straight after that. So, um, but that era was obviously good. But I feel like it's deeper now. Those the, the 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 pool that you would you are picking that could win a major now is bigger than it was then. Did they have feel? the Grand Slam of golf that year? Yeah. Did you, did you play in that? Did yeah, everybody was, play? Because um, that had to be one of the last years of that. It we were one of the last ones in Kauai. We went to Kauai, and they went to um, Bermuda for a couple of years after that. Um, it was a crazy event. I think Furyk was at mine because he had the next best scoring average because Tiger won two. Uh-huh. Um, so it was Phil, me, Tiger, and Wiz and Furyk, I think. Because they always used to let the if someone won two for that year. But the best the best thing out of the best thing that came out of Wingfoot was I played with Tiger and Phil in the first two rounds of Madonna in two thousand six, which was the biggest crowd I've ever seen. It was just unbelievable for 36 holes. It was a really fun 36 holes because it was the, the height. Uh, Phil had won the Masters. Tiger had won the Open. And I'm in sandwich in the middle. Like, no one really even cares that I'm there. So I'm just a spectator, really. And this, it was crazy. It was really fun. And Chicago, people are loud, as you know. Yeah. Like, and Madonna's a loud place. It is like, a loud the amphitheaters. And, a loud place, except when the Euros make a Sunday when run. When Rosie makes a 74 yeah. on 17. <laughs> it gets really quiet. Yeah. <laughs> the, wow. uh, was, is that the the playing with tiger shot thing real like the people say like i think rory and jt said something like last year after riv like you know it, it had to be a shot or a shot and a half what they dealt with that day because i played two groups in front of them that yeah. day what they were dealing with because that was tiger just back out everyone's hyped up this is comeback numbers four or whatever and but like this one's gonna stick right and yeah People were just crazy. He hadn't been to LA for a while. It was the craziest morning. Outrageous. And River's a really small property and holes are really close together. And uh, Tiger group, Tiger fans are different from normal golf fans or an element of his crowd is different. They're they're Tiger fans. They're not golf fans. So they're just there to see their man. They don't like understand that there's other groups on the course. And I mean, that's not what they're about. They're about seeing Tiger, right? So I think... Whenever I play, I play with them a lot and I was pretty fortunate in some pretty good situations like that. People were great. But I think on these comebacks, especially when he hasn't been around for a long time and then he came, when he came back, people were extra crazy. Um, it was, look, it was tough. He was good to play with in that he wouldn't putt in, putt out if he didn't have to um, and like get the crowd to walk off and stuff. He was generally pretty good to you like that like he had a he had an understanding or an, an awareness of the the effect that he had on the crowd so he was pretty good with it um but yeah it's difficult the hardest group to play in was in front of tiger in those days or any day really probably because every time whenever you're putting his crowd's coming up the fairway they're all walking to try to get position around the green they're all trying to get on the tee they're all trying to get position for the for the next group to get a good view so they don't care that you're putting they're just walking right because they want to be next to the green so the least favorite draw 
historically would have been the group in front of him, not with him. With him, it's kind of you're a bit insulated because it's you're just in amongst it, and it's like that white noise. It's just so much noise that you don't. It's like noise yeah. cancelling headphones. You don't notice after a while because it's just constant. But the group in front or around him, that gets tough because you don't quite have the white noise effect, but you have the stampeding masses up coming up behind you when you're hitting all the time. That's interesting. So uh, what uh, we got five under through day one. What's the winning score going to be at Pebble? I think it'd be less than 10. I think there's no course that I know that could get difficult quick faster than Pebble. I think uh, just by the amount of water they put on the green, it's not going to rain. I mean, it might, if it stays foggy, it won't get as firm, but they could get the greens crazy firm and crazy fast really quick here, I think. Um, and I think by the end, they'll be tough. Although they're probably a little gun shy, right? Because of yeah. their last few years, they need a really smooth, good one, right? They need no one to talk about setup. Um, well, it's too easy. In, you know, Aaron Hill. But again, if it, yeah, if it goes too deep, they're obviously not afraid because Aaron Hills, yeah, they went into the teens, right? So they've broken that kind of... Well, that was rain, no wind. Yeah. You know, par 72. I don't know. I don't. The forecast doesn't look like there's anything too crazy coming, but I think it'll be like high single digits. I would think. I, th- I think there'll be a whole lot of people under par at the end. I mean, seventy-two holes here. Eventually, you're going to have some. You're going to have some bumps in the road, you know, and it's going to get progressively harder every day. I didn't really study the pins today, but most pins at Pebble are tough because they're all so slopey. So, single digits under par. I don't know. We'll see. You know, if it's eight, it'd be even par of par sixty-nine. Well, there you go. Yeah, so it's past seventy one. It is past seventy one. Yeah. yeah, so that's not a bad way to think about it. Actually, if they're really obsessed with score near par, just change the par. But then we're going to be crowing because there's no par fives. Well, but is it a par five anymore? If if two, so think about the definition: two ideal shots from an expert player, or I, how many ideal shots from an expert player plus two putts. <laughs> Yeah, well, that that's a so difficult definition. Though. Eighteen at Pebble, if you hit a great drive and a great second shot, eighteen at not a par four. But if you hit a great drive and a great second shot, you're on the green, right? Yes. So, if on six at Pebble, if you hit a great drive, great second shot, good, say even good, good drive, good second shot, you're on the green, right? Yeah. So it's par four. That's what it was in nineteen eleven. Six was a par four, not well, oh, like the definition, definition of yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. It's interesting. But your argument kind of kills itself because par, it doesn't really matter anyway, right? Well, it doesn't. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying if, you, if you're going to care about score to par, then yeah, you've yeah. got to adapt sc- And I've always traditionally done... Traditionally, that's what they did, right? They'd go to a normal course, pinch in the fairways a little bit, turn a par 72 and a par 70, and that was it. That's, that was kind of their thing. And they just got so excited about how hard they made it that they just took it too far maybe sometimes. What if... Some would uh, argue. But... But you say that, if you look at the list of champions we've had, even through these controversy setups, like Jordan Spieth winning at Chambers, yeah. everyone thought that was a disaster. You give me the, the best golfer in the world at the time, won, and he beat Dustin Johnson, who was probably the other best golfer in the world at the time. Adam Scott was up there, and Jason Day, everyone Bruce was Hazen up there. Was they there. were all yeah. right there, right? Brooks has won twice in a row. He's clearly the best player in majors, so they're finding the right champions. Yeah. So say what we want. They're, they're ticking my box in that they're letting the best player in the field show his skills, you know? Yeah, and then, yeah, like it already, the early outrage today is like, oh, it's too soft. And you look at the leaderboard, it's like, hey, you got the best player in the world at the top. Yeah. Like, you, you don't, like, I, I went out and watched, uh, you know, today, and it's like, 
you watch it, you hit a bad shot. Like it's going to be really, really, really hard to make par. You know, like you got. It's play- funny that people look at the score rather than the names. Yeah. Don't you think? It is. Be more interested to look at the names on the leaderboard, not the scores I was shooting. To me. Yeah. But. And that's like the thing that drove me kind of crazy about Aaron Hills when everybody was going nuts was like that Saturday was absolutely electric. You had JT making e- like he made Eagle on 18 for, I mean, he shot 63. Patrick Reed shot 65. He hit nine greens. You know, he's just chipping in from everywhere, making everything. Like, you know, it was just an unbelievable round where you saw these guys just playing unbelievable. I mean, Fleetwood had a crazy good round. Yeah. Like, it was like all the greatest players in the world are having, like, you're watching them do spectacular stuff, and everybody's complaining because they're shooting low score. I know, which is nonsense, right? Yeah. Like, but that's part of it. It's almost unfair because if you go to a different venue every year, you can't get us to shoot the same score because we're just on different courses in different conditions. It should you should have low scoring years and high scoring years. I mean, it should go like that, depending on where you go and what the conditions and the weather have been. So we need to, golf fans collectively need to give the USGA a break on the score at least. Yeah. Well, so, I think it's like- They every- need to get rid of it out of their head too, I think. They still have it in their head, I think, a little bit, the score. But I think like the, every venue should have their unique thing, right? Yeah. Because like that's what the Open has. The Open is unique. And nobody ever cares or remembers the score that's been shot at the Open. And ever. each venue is like... Unless it's their, a freakish score. They're kind of like unique little thing. Like, well, at Troon, you got to avoid all the bunker. Like Troon on the moon, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know? And then you've got Burkdale, which everybody's... Oh, it's the bad... But it's, it's much more of a standard test. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and everybody's got... And like nobody cares that at the old course, if somebody... If they win at 1800, you no know? No one cares. Well, I don't think many people care. No one goes away going, oh, the Open wasn't a real tournament this year because 18 under won the tournament, right? Like, no one even thinks about saying something like that. Yeah, it's funny. I don't know. My thought is just, like, par hasn't been adjusted for the modern game. And that's why they're having such problems with setup to protect par. Well, you can't do it with length. They've been trying to do it with length, and you can't do it with length. And you shouldn't do it by making the greens too fast so the ball doesn't ever stop on a slope, right? So whatever else you can do, I guess, you know. And par is the easiest way to at least affect the number on the right-hand side of the scoreboard. Yeah, if you're yeah. if you're not going to regulate, if you, you know, they didn't regulate the technology that allowed for mass distance, but they've regulated par where they don't allow par to move. Yeah. Which is, it doesn't make any sense. That's quite interesting, but it would be a shame if we lost great like par five strategies and stuff because everything just became a par four. And see, I don't know if it's a completely it's completely the same because two ideal shots. It's not the whole field that can hit two ideal shots on the eighteenth. You don't think so? No. Everybody's hitting it past the tree. What in this particular week? But if it goes two miles an hour into the wind and gets misty and foggy. No one in the field gets it there in two. Yeah. So, so then like, you can't flip. See, because that, that that's a funny thing with Chambers. Remember when... You can't say it's an ideal driver three-wood from 260, right? It's got to be like a... I think it has to be a driver and an iron for pretty much everyone in the field for it to be a par four. An iron. Yeah. The longest iron. Three iron. Driver three iron, that can be a par four for... I'll pick on Zach. Yeah. Zach's in the bottom 20% of driving distance probably in the field. Fair? Bottom I mean, he might disagree. 
You bottom forty percent. I don't know. He, he's been working on his, uh, you know, swing speeds. <laughs> Joking. Yeah. Um, but he hits at a sensible two ninety something, right? Yeah. But the guy who hits at two ninety something is not hitting an iron in the eighteenth of Pebble Beach. He's in a three wood, probably. You know, maybe not. Maybe a five wood. That's not a par four. Look at the shot it is, though. There's got to be some uh, respect for the difficulty of the shot. See, it would be easier if you went half pars, because then if you made yeah. if you made eighteen eighteen and six half pars, and you you're par seventy. How do you have a half par? Well, I half... mean, there's there's all kinds <laughs> of crazy. I mean, like it's at Pinehurst four and five when Core flipped the pars. Yeah, and they did it at Chambers in the tournament. Yeah, had but... one and eighteen is four five four five, and people went nuts. Couldn't you just I didn't change think it was part? that weird. That, that was one of the least weird things about Chambers, I thought. <laughs> it was kind of a little bit weird. Because you think about par. You think about, oh, I made birdie or bogey. I don't know. How do you make a par if it's a half par? You can't. But, but when you, make, you have say you make a birdie on like a 240 par three, you walk off the green and in, in your head, you're kind of like, oh, I got I got a little more than a shot there. Right? Yeah. When you make a bogey on like a really hard par four, Four, you th- you think that way too, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, what about this idea? Whatever the leader is, is at zero. Everyone else is over par. Everyone else is not over par, but it's just, just behind. One, four, six. Well, certainly, like it's hard to mess with par because it's the way of measuring someone's score relative to everyone else at different points yeah. in the round right because you that's can't like just wait till the yeah. end and you've had 274 shots sort of it like it's you need to be able to measure in the middle of a round mm-hmm. um maybe that would be a massive shift in golf scoring thinking it would be i think to a certain extent better because it would show it would be better know. if we didn't worry about par so much but par is so important for handicapping right so it would be standard though with everything across like you'd see oh like he won by you know like people would stop saying oh it was like what you said at the beginning like sometimes when it's you know somebody shoots 22 under it's still really challenging it can be yeah so if they won at zero always yeah that guy's always at zero maybe and it would show relative people start to judge relative performance more because like you know i don't know i'm trying to sell you on some craggy crackpot I think Theory. golf's doing all right. I think they just need to just understand, like last year, I think, I mean, and they're going to say that, I don't know, they didn't do anything wrong and it just got, they got unlucky, but they just have to say, well, sometimes we're going to shoot low, these boys, yeah. you know, and we don't have the weather this week or we didn't have the, the lead up weather or we didn't get the course to how we thought it could be at its toughest. Well, that's what we got this week. Let's just make the best of it. And they shoot 15 under, they shoot 15 under. They think- let that happen every now and then when they, can't make it really difficult sometimes it's easy right you go to oakmont you don't have to do anything you just open the gates and it's tough pioneers number two is going to be the same but sometimes you come to pebble sometimes and maybe it's been a little bit damp in spring it's just going to be soft it just is what it is and guys are going to go low that's all right though right yeah good players win the at&t great players win the at&t usually yeah you know so you're going to find a good champion anyway i think what you said about like look at the leaderboard not the score look at the names Yeah. yeah like that's the if you get the names, I mean, you can tell. And guys, people in golf who follow golf, they, regardless of the world rankings, know the cream, you know, mm-hmm. who's playing well at the time and the cream in that field. If the cream in that field, if the if the 
platform they're on or the course they're on allows the guys who are playing their best to be there at the end on Sunday, then it's a good setup. And that's that's what the Masters does. They almost always get everyone they should have in contention, in contention, deep on Sunday afternoon because the, the, the test that's presented is, a, is such a complete test that only the players playing really, really well can pass that test. Well, yeah, and then like this year is a perfect example. It was a wet, warm week. You know, like not ideal for the, for them, like conditioning wise. And then on Sunday, you got Molinari, Woods, Kepka. all the, the every pre tournament favorite yeah. except for Rory is like there, really yeah. in contention. You know, and it seems to happen every year. So it doesn't really matter the score that is. It just matters that the players playing their best are given the kind of platform that allows them to show their skills. You know, and that doesn't always. Have, sometimes I'm not saying in U.S. Opens, but sometimes we have tournaments that really heavily lay on like it's all about the guy who putts well mm-hmm. see beth page i think is a little bit one-dimensional in that you just can't do it unless you fly it a really long way in the air which is a yeah. massive part of being one of the best players in the world right but it's not probably the complete test that you could get at the masters which is massive on distance but it's also massive on strategy and short game and i mean think about if spieth had gained 10 shots or 11 shots like he did at, at beth page and at at the masters like on the greens, he had one of the, like historically unbelievable putting week. Yeah, and he was what six shots behind Brooks. Yeah, no chance. Yeah, no chance. It was well, uh, certainly much more difficult. And yeah. like, there's a there's probably a time for that test, you know, just like there's the time for the tiny little small, bouncy narrow test. You know, there's a time like for Harbor all Town. sorts of yeah, Harbour Town style test or the Marion kind of deal. You yeah. know, um, but as long as the best, the guys who are playing their best. I kind of given that opportunity to shine. I think you know you've got it right. I don't think the score matters then. You know, and the best tournaments always have the the best leaderboards. Mm-hmm. You know, the best yeah. setups, the best golf course setups always have the best leaderboard. And they're the fun ones to watch. They're the ones we all want to watch. We all want to watch number one versus number three, number versus number seven versus whoever else. You know, we always want to watch those our heroes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the most memorable ones. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody remembers, uh, I don't know, some people remember the other ones, but, you know, you remember Jack versus Watson, you know, Duel in the Sun. Yeah, and like, and that obviously, that was rock hard that weekend. It allowed the two best players in the world at that time showcase that they were so much better than third at yeah. that moment, you know. It was a bit like Henrik and Phil at uh, Troon. It was obviously very playable that week. Yeah. If you were playing like them. Yeah. If you weren't, it was completely impossible, right? So it allowed that the guy. That was a perfect. It's a perfect setup. Yeah. You know, that was absolutely magic. And who doesn't? That was one of the best weekends of golf to ever watch. Yeah. I, I always will remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez, that course is naturally tough. You don't have to do anything to trim. All right. We're, we're going to wrap it. I don't, I don't need to give you any more of my theories. So yeah. it's enough for a day. <laughs> but uh, thanks for coming on. Who are you, uh, who are you taking? We're midway through round one, so... Well, know. I was picking Jordan before the week, but... um, We got to get a leaderboard update here. We're going to get an update. Xander, oh, Xander is an interesting... Xander's, Xander will look good. I think Louis. I always like Louis. If Louis gets down deep in the tournament, he's he's more competitive than people know. Um, and he is, he's got every shot. He's got the Grand Slam runner-up. Yeah, he's got the Grand Slam runner-up. He's, he's a big-time performer, so <laughs> let's go for Louis. That's, yeah. All right. I got, uh, I took Dustin, but he's even. He's already five shots back. Eh, come here. Dustin at Pebble's always going to be there in the end, though, I think. Yeah.